I hated Jewish people and I was taught to hate and demonize Israel. Israel was this thing that was like the epitome of all evil. For instance, Jewish people want to kill Palestinians and Muslims for the mere pleasure of killing them. The Israeli um, authorities are running the world and trying to destroy Islam. I started being taught that it is a duty upon every single Muslim to fight violent jihad. Britain is the enemy that you are living in enemy territory. Do you think there's widespread support for Hamas among the Palestinian population? Absolutely. <laughs> That's kind of like a given for me, even in the West Bank, unfortunately. Yeah. How could Israel ever, how could they ever have the confidence that this wouldn't be a state that would then declare war on Israel? Um, even if not by that particular leader, but by another one, because it's so pervasive in the culture. You can't. Hello everybody and welcome to a very special episode of JTV. Today we're joined by Sohel Ahmed, who is currently a student at Cambridge University for Im studying immunology. However, here's where it, gets, where it gets even more interesting. He is a former Hamas supporter um, who even dreamed up a terrorist plot in central London at one time, but he has now been de-radicalized and condemns Hamas. And I'm so pleased to say that he joins us here on JTV today. So, Hell, thank you so much for making the time to be here with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. So, why don't you start by just telling us, telling the viewers a bit about your background. How was it that you got sucked into being a Hamas supporter from, I believe, as early age as like six years old? So my radicalization story uh, began at six. So I was radicalized from that age by my parents, of all people. Um, they themselves had become radicalized by a family who lived in the same tower block as us. And they, they essentially, and I'm, go I'm going to use this term, it's like they converted to a different religion almost, because previously, they were kind of your bog standard kind of Muslims. And then they, there was this radical kind of change. Initially, the change was more in terms of appearance, more kind of cosmetic. And um, that in and of itself was, wasn't the issue, of course. Um, my mother started wearing the headscarf, then the hijab covering the whole body, then the niqab covering the face um and eventually even using gloves uh, and socks to cover the hands and the feet um and my 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 father started growing a progressively larger beard um in and of itself completely innocuous but that's when the more troubling things or the more concerning things began i started being taught that it is a duty upon every single muslim to fight violent jihad that there is a never-ending war between Muslims and non-Muslims, that Britain is the enemy, that you are living in enemy territory, um, that you should hate your country and you should hate all non-Muslims um, and you should live your life like that. Now, as a six-year-old who didn't have much kind of critical thinking capacity i um believed it <laughs> yeah. um i, I took sense. it wholeheartedly yeah 
Um, and there was one thing that I had, my first doubt did occur at that, around that age. My parents had told me not to be friends with non-Muslims. And they said, look, non-Muslims will pretend to be your friends, but they, they actually hate you. But I, I secretly had non-Muslim friends in school. And I knew for a fact that they actually liked me for who I was and that even when you were sick, even when you were six. Yes. And, and yes. You, so you weren't in a Muslim school. No, no, no. I was in a, um, a secular school, a state right. school. And after that, um, I kind of wondered like this, something's up. Um, there's, there's this contradiction. But I, I kind of just pushed it back into the darkest, deepest recesses of my mind and just forgot about it. And this is, I'm going to say something which has never become easier. It's after all these years, it's, it hasn't become easier to say. But when I was around 16, 17, I began considering violence in my home city of London. This was during the drawdown of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Um, right, so what sort of year now, are we talking? So we're talking about 2009, 2000 and 2008. Yeah. And I remember kind of going to all these mosques, attending all of them, and every single imam, every single preacher is saying, this is an extension of the never-ending war against Islam. They are attacking us because we are Muslims, and they want to destroy the Muslim world. It is our duty to fight back. And this was being said openly in the mosques. Um, and so it, 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 con it concorded with the ideology I had been raised with. So I believed it. I believed that simply these wars, regardless of what you think about these foreign policy decisions, I think we can all agree that this wasn't a war just to kill Muslims, just for the sake of killing Muslims. Yeah. That's, that's utterly insane. But to my mind then, that wasn't insane. That made complete sense. Um, so you really believe so that the Western governments just wanted to kill Muslims for the sake of that. Absolutely. And how did I make sense of that? And how do many Muslims make sense of that, unfortunately, is by believing in conspiracy theories. Because when your worldview is twisted, you have to twist reality to your own mind, yeah. the way you yeah. see it. And that's when all the conspiracy theories about the shadowy people, the shadowy elite at the top, the Jews run the world. That's a very popular one, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, um, I've heard. <laughs> and I, yeah, I am ashamed to say I believed in them. Um, and that is what led me down that path. Now, I never did anything illegal. And it's not the point of legality. It, that's not the point. The point is, is that I never harmed anyone. Had I actually harmed someone, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. I genuinely mean that. And I'm glad I, di I didn't move forward with it. I didn't even kind of so much as to kind of put pen to paper or anything. I didn't kind of do any scouting. I didn't do anything like that. It was all kind of 
in my mind at that stage. Yeah. What stopped me, what pulled me back from the brink was my inner moral compass. Something was just telling me this is wrong. Despite being brainwashed since the age of six, something within me just kind of said, stops. Think about this. You're going to kill innocent people. Look at your non-Muslim friends. Would you be okay with someone killing them? And of course I wouldn't. And I, I began considering it. And I then started looking for interpretations within Salafist Islam. So I, I, my, I was a Salafi, a Salafi Wahhabi, um, which is the uh, form of Islam largely practiced in the area, the Saudi Arabia kind of area. Um, and I started looking for interpretations within Salafist Islam that said terrorism is not permissible. Now, I found that interpretation and that interpretation, bizarrely, and this is quite telling, didn't state that terrorism is bad because it's morally wrong, because you're killing innocent people. Rather, it said it was a very technical legalistic argument. You as a Muslim have signed a covenant, an agreement with the British government by dint of having a British citizenship um, that you will abide by the laws and will not attack Britain. Therefore, you cannot engage in a terror attack. The problem with that, whilst it did kind of stop me, and frankly, I think I would have stopped anyway, even if I hadn't come across that interpretation. The problem with that is, is that when you have something very technical in place that stops you from doing something so horrific, it's very easy to circumvent those te technicalities. For instance, yeah. the, um, the former Al-Qaeda operative and scholar uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, which who incidentally preached at the mosque I attended, um, uh, he, he, he visited from, from the US uh, and was, was preaching in London. Um, he became the first uh, US citizen to be uh, killed by American drone strike which was uh, controversial then. Um, and he stated that actually, because if you're born as a British citizen or an American citizen, you physically haven't signed anything. Therefore, that agreement doesn't apply to you. Therefore, you can engage in jihad against the kuffar, the infidels, the non-Muslims. That's, that's problematic. Um, that's highly problematic. Um, but, but anyway, um, kind of moving on from that, I started having doubts about the utter rank hypocrisy that I was seeing amongst my fellow Islamists. Um, for instance, they'd say the most horrible things about Jews, Judaism, about Hindus, Hinduism, about Christians, Christianity, and they say things? horrible, horrible, horrible things. Yet, when anyone said the slightest word against Islam, even if that was a genuinely held criticism, we, they would always cry Islamophobia, you're racist, and they would shut it down. 
Well, even See, to you as a Muslim. Even, as, even to me as an extremist, I had the self-awareness to realize that. But that was kind of further down the line. It, I didn't notice it immediately. Mm. I only noticed it after my kind of desistance from terrorism. Right. So, um, and then I started seeing the other hypo, hip, hip, hypocritical kind of beliefs for instance being against the the whole kind of oh the kuffara evil because they invaded iraq and afghanistan um when at the same time the islamists believe that they should invade and conquer the entire world <laughs> it's like it's it's completely contradictory and that that didn't seem like something that would be from the true from from truth that just seemed like it just seemed wrong. And these kinds of doubts would fester a cascade of dominoes after that fell too. Like my views on um, non-Muslims, hatred of non-Muslims, my views on uh, kind of jihad, my views on literalist Sharia, where you're basically stoning people to death and chopping off people's heads, um, women's rights, um, even gay rights. Um, all of those things, I started looking for progressive Islam and liberal Islam. And I was convinced and I, I became a very liberal Muslim. And slowly I began warming up to Israel too. Um, what were your views about, about Israel during this, during your extreme phase? Yeah. Um, I hated Jewish people, unfortunately. It's, um, that's not easy to say. I am deeply ashamed of it. Um, and I never said anything bad against a Jewish person. So I was always friendly. I was always kind of not kind of, you know, abusive or anything. But I was taught to hate Jewish people. And I was taught to hate and demonize Israel. Israel was this thing that was like the epitome of all evil. And like everything bad just came from the land called Israel um so like what? like what what kind of things did you associate with jews in israel i mean for instance um jewish people want to kill palestinians and muslims for the mere pleasure of killing them um i mean that the the israeli um authorities are running the world and trying to destroy islam that um israeli intelligence is kind of almost like this godlike power in these conspiracy theories where they they kind of believe that anything that goes wrong in the world is and it kind of turns out to be harmful to the islamic world or to the world view of muslims that's always the the fault of the jews just somehow they'll kind of make Did you that believe connection. the jews sort of had like a sort of quite a serious level of like power and influence and were like a very sort of sinister force and in some ways you felt threatened perhaps by them it sounds friggin insane but um yes i believe that in retrospect i'm looking it's at not insane that we've been through this for three thousand years we know <laughs> we're familiar with this these conspiracies i'm very sorry that you had to even experience that uh, it shouldn't be the case that um, anyone has to, or any demographic has to go through that. Um, and I'm deeply ashamed of the views that I held. And frankly, they seem ridiculous uh, to me now. 
um there was yeah was this one story um that i should relate to you um i was once my father and myself attended a jewish household um we were selling them some items so we were dropping them off and myself i have a memory since i was a child that whenever anyone anyone would smile at me i would always feel happy so as a thing i i would always smile at children so there was this little toddler really kind of like three four years old and i smiled at him immediately he came to he came towards me some seemingly became attached and then was kind of giving me his toys and his and the parent said he wants to play with you and then i looked i looked at them and then they said no you can go ahead and then i kind of sat down with him and started playing with his toys with him and he was just kind of so happy and bubbly and i remember the 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 parents kind of looking on and me looking at them and them feeling really proud and feeling happy and me thinking i hate them but they don't hate me they trusted me with their toddler hmm. i was a young teenager then v- visibly muslim i had a beard and all just like i do now well smaller one um but that that even whilst i was an extremist that really changed my views of jewish people so even before my de-radicalization my views on jewish people were actually softening um and when i became de-radicalized i think the kind of scene was set for me to kind of look at things with an open mind wow. and understand and I, everything and i want to talk about your de-radicalization process and what you've been doing since but just before we do that so and what what was your specific relationship with uh hamas and being a hamas supporter because obviously this, this interview is is partly in light of you know october 7th and what's been happening since of course of course um thankfully i was never a member of hamas um but I was an ardent supporter. I remember once um, in university, it was the Islamic Society. That um, was back in medical school those days. Um, and I kind of was sitting there in the Islamic Society and a guy just went, he was talking about Palestine and Israel. And one of the, the brothers, the, 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 the brothers went, he turned around and went, how dare you? It's all Israel's lies and the Kuffar are lying. Hamas is only only defending itself. And he got really heated up too. And um, someone else kind of intervened and said, okay, we all have different opinions on this. Um, and I remember kind of going to pro-Palestine marches and kind of supporting Hamas not kind of supporting them, actually supporting them. And um, I really thought that actually all the stuff that was said about them was actually Israeli lies, Israeli propaganda, Western You mean stuff like, you know, they use human shields and they're really freedom fighters, all that kind of stuff. Exactly, exactly. And when you kind of have a mindset where basically everything is automatically 
anything against your worldview or your or your ideology is automatically lies it's very easy to just kind of confirmation by a state in your own path kind of just keep going down that route um that that was my relationship with hamas and can you explain to us for those who don't understand what are the goals of hamas the goals of hamas are within their constitution it says we want to kill jews we want to wipe israel off the map they don't want to diplomatically um negotiate with the israelis in terms of a peace settlement they want to kill as many jews as they can and wipe israel off the map there is no working with them when i was an extremist i would read fatwas by the um the salafi scholars many uh, hamas is formed of many salafis um and they would say someone would ask the question would be uh, is it halal for us is it permissible for us to um, negotiate a peace agreement with israel to establish a palestinian state and the scholars unanimously were agreeing yes it's permissible but only if your end goal is to become strong enough economically politically then militarily so that eventually you can then invade israel and take it over you have to yeah. lie to the israelis you have to lie to the jews and this is what you were told by and your religious leaders yes and i was reading this online on the on the material i was reading from the islamic scholars so it wasn't like i was kind of going to the 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 kind of like the the literature myself it was actual interpretation from scholars who were saying this very yeah. clearly that stuff's still yeah. online i can i can send you that stuff so so how um, i mean how, how is it given that this the this this theology and this mindset is so pervasive how could israel ever feel confident enough secure enough to be prepared to say to to some palestinian leader in the future let's say even if they rise up and they say i'm a moderate i'm prepared to make a deal and they and they you know they've offered states in the past how could they ever have the confidence that this wouldn't be a state that would then declare war on israel um even if not by that particular leader but by another one because it's so pervasive in the culture you can't which is why israel has very serious security concerns which is why israel essentially kind of wants a replication of area b in the west west bank they don't want the, the israelis are kind of arguing for okay we'll give you a palestinian state but only if there are enclaves within the palestinian territory such that there are israeli military units stationed um throughout the territory in enclaves so that if any threat evolves they they have the operational flexibility to, to respond as quickly as possible but then the world will continue that to say oh but, to but, 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 the, but the world will say well that's occupation it's it's that's a completely utterly simplistic way of of seeing it um israel genuinely is facing an existential threat yeah that's real that's not made up that's not kind of used for political bargaining or, or as a football that's real 
And so I know there's for another... a fact because I go, go on, ahead. go for it. No, 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 no. Go ahead, go ahead. No, please, please, please. I'll ask after you. You were going to say something. I, I mean, uh, thank you, thank you so much. Um, it's I was one of them. I believed in this ideology, and so many of my my fellow compatriots, my Muslim compatriots who thought like me, also agreed. And frankly, this was a often a majoritarian view within certain sects like Salafism. Like that, that opinion was unanimous with that, that though in those fatwas that was saying, yeah, make peace, but only if you, if the goal is to deceive them to, in order to actually um, invade them later on. And that's when, when I be, became de-radicalized, I realized two things. I realized firstly, that the threat of Islamism is actually far more pervasive and far more serious and far more prevalent than anyone cares to admit. Secondly, to everyone going, oh, you know, um, the, the, why doesn't Israel give the Palestinians a state? They don't at all understand the ideology, the religious ideology, the theocratic ideology, the kind of violent ideology behind kind of a lot of the thinking that goes into it. Well, it's not just that, but also the question is how many Palestinians actually support it. So, for example, do you think there's widespread support for Hamas among the Palestinian population? Absolutely. <laughs> That's kind of like a given for me. Um, I mean, they were voted in and um, from all reports that I'm seeing, um, they hold Hamas has popular kind of support. Um, and what about the West Bank and Judea? Yeah. Even in the West Bank, unfortunately. Yeah. Even in the West Bank. And Fatah, the, the more moderates who really aren't in really moderates um, because they celebrate terror attacks and name streets after people who have killed Jewish and people. And pay families Israeli of terrorists, people. yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's just call, let's go with it. Let's call them moderates. Um, Slightly uh, less extreme. Even, <laughs> um, even, even with them, the many of the Palestinians living in the West Bank see them as an extension of the Israeli as they see it, the occupation. They see them as agents of the occupiers. So even for them, Fatah isn't even serious enough, extreme enough for them. And I'm not making, I'm not trying to tar everyone with a broad, broad brush because there are some individuals who are very more progressive, both religious and secular within the Palestinian territories. But unfortunately, they're the minority. Hmm. So, before we talk about the future, I, I guess, and what a viable path forward, um, again, just because it's important our audience hear this and people that perhaps are undecided, just to be clear, do Hamas need to be eliminated? They do. Without, I mean, if... As long as Hamas is in power, there will be no peace. Even if you look at the, the say, the political situation inside Israel, this current government is the most right wing that Israel's had. But there's a reason for that. It says a reason because Hamas 
continuously keeps bombarding Israel with rockets. Now, imagine you're constantly under attack. Of course, you're going to kind of vote for people who are kind of promising more security, um, being harsher against the enemy, um, and and kind of offering protection. Like yeah. I have, I, I will, like, I'm not defending like the, the Israeli authorities, I will criticize them. But at the same time, I'm not going to demonize Israel and basically say, uh, oh yeah, this all happened in a vacuum and they're just bad people. It, that's how people in the, in the West think. These things are, arose for a reason. Israel initially, originally, was very open to offering a Palestinian state. Israel has only arrived where it is now as a consequence of the Palestinians and the Arabs and their refusal to negotiate. There was a that former Israeli, is Israeli diplomat called Abba Eban who said, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, so what do you, unfortunately, true. Yeah. What do you say to those that are calling for a ceasefire right now? It's absurd, but what do you say to them? I... If people ask for temporary ceasefires so as to allow humanitarian aid for civilians in a way in which you can in if you can like kind of minimize the the kind of support going to the wrong place i.e to hamas uh we want you want to like stop that from happening if that can be stopped and you can provide humanitarian aid and i believe israel has agreed to this already um then temporary ceasefires I support in certain locations, not across the entire Gaza Strip. So it has to be the, the temporary ceasefires have to be location specific. Secondly, those, those calling for a full ceasefire. This, that's where I, yeah, exactly those calling for a full ceasefire. That that's the worst thing that could happen. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I have questions about for the Israeli authorities too, about the tactics they're using. But if you argued for a change of tactics versus changing versus arguing for a complete ceasefire, that's, that's not reasonable. Because we're not fighting with a reasonable kind of enemy here. The people that have instigated this war are not amenable to reason. And, they and, and can you... only speak the the language of violence. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's obvious to, to, to you and me. Um, what do you say to those who say, and I think it's a ridiculous argument, but you have some, especially isolationists and people who are, you know, they talk all about just war, always breeding more war. Those who say, well, if Israel destroy Hamas, they'll create more Hamas terrorists as, as a result. Um, which is basically saying, so Israel should just say, oh, well, okay, we'll just wait till the next terror attack then. What, what do you say to people who say that? There's an actual formal military strategy known as, and it sounds strange, it's called mowing the lawn strategy. It's basically where you have periodic um, uh, kind of airstrikes to degrade the enemy, uh, not to entirely eliminate them, po possibly because it's not, possible to entirely eliminate them but to degrade them enough 
so that they can't operate. And then to keep periodically doing that so as to ensure that the threat remains neutralized. That's what Israel does. Israel isn't bombing the Palestinians because they're somehow, they just like bombing people. (laughs) We hate it. It's utterly ridiculous. (laughs) It's ridiculous to assert that. Um, And I can't believe there are, that people just have this completely simplistic, childish view of the conflict. Yeah. And I want to talk about why that is. What is it that leads to people having such absurd views of, of the world and reality and Israel and Jews. Um, but a few more questions before we get there. What do you make about the overall world's reaction to the October 7th massacre pogrom? That was October 7 was Israel's 9-11. That goes without saying. Um, I remember I, w- I was just today reading about this um, civilian uh, who gathered all the recordings of everything that happened, both on from Hamas and from the the Israeli victims, and from the 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 the, the, the soldiers and from the search and rescue teams, and he basically put them together, and this has been screened selectively to diplomats and journalists uh, about a hundred times across the world, and what's in there is so horrific that people who heard about what was in there refused to attend, including diplomats. That's how horrific that video is. I haven't seen it and I don't want to see it because I would like to, you know, be able to sleep at night. Um, People need to realize the extent and the severity of what happened on October 7. This was not a continuation of the conflict. This was not a mere continuation of it. This was something different. It was so serious that it required an equally, if not more serious response. Simply from a game theoretical perspective, if, if someone like really, really does something horrific, you have to respond in a way that kind of bears the weight of that. Otherwise, if you do not respond appropriately, you then tell the other side, go ahead, you can do it worse next time. We won't respond as much. Again, we'll just be weak. So in the end, Israel is faced with two evil options, right? Either bomb the, the Gaza Strip, eliminate Hamas, or um do do nothing yeah well the first option the first option isn't evil the first option is painful it's it's messy it's tragic but it's not evil and and that's one of the things i mean uh, i know i know i know exactly what you mean by the way i know totally what you mean yeah 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 yeah. of course of course (laughs) i'm just saying that i think we need to be way more careful with with the language we use because we are so morally confused you know like for example comparing casualties on either side is an absurd way to judge the morality of a conflict. That's an absurd way. Look, the Israelis did not go into the Gaza Strip and behead babies and shoot babies and actually split women in half and then go parade their dead bodies. 
police around everywhere. A single IDF soldier do that. Had that happened, I'm pretty sure a lot of people would have, you know, rejoiced at that almost because they would have said, ah, see, look, Israel's evil. Um, that does that didn't happen. In the case of the of the um, casualties in Gaza, it is horrible, and I do feel for the Palestinians. Of course, I'm a human, but th those weren't purposeful civilian casualties. It, yeah. Israel wasn't it's going so in there targeting it's civilians. So and both the EU and the US, and the EU, I have to stress, because the EU has been very critical of Israel previously, they mm. put out statements that were very strong against Hamas, saying, what you're doing by using human shields and by using hospitals as command and control centers is barbaric. It's not civilized. So no one should have a shadow of a doubt that that is what Hamas does, that they use human shields. Yeah, yeah. And Sahel, what do you think it is about this conflict and about Israel and about the Jews that, that creates such strong emotions uh, in people? And, it, you know, as I'm sure you know as well, anti-Semitism and anti-Israel hostility extends beyond, beyond radical Muslims. Absolutely. Unfortunately, it does. There's a number of factors that apply to it. Um, one is anti-Semitism, just pure anti-Semitism. Just of the, course, the, but the why, idea why, why that, does that um, why does that exist? What do you think is causing such somehow, deep hatred? It seems to exist from kind of the religious theological side as well as kind of politically on the more kind of like so. Okay, so the Islamists who hate Jews mostly do it for theological reasons and also because they have islamic supremacist values where seceding any an iota of territory to a non-muslim is like fundamentally against their ideology right right so israel must uh, be such an abomination to them having a jewish state in the heart <laughs> of the middle east in the heart of arabia it's just must be the most I know, right? en enraging Only thing. Of man. <laughs> yeah yeah but it's one sliver too much <laughs> I mean, and then there's the far left, right? They hate Jewish people for a reason that is kind of a mixture of things. One is kind of pure envy of kind of the success of the Jewish community. The other thing is kind of, it falls within the framework of we hate the West, we love the enemies of the West because we're anti-imperialism and Israel is an apartheid state somehow, even though there is no one supranational Israel. Like, how can there be an, an apartheid state if both of those territories aren't one contiguous state? That's, it's not the case that there's one Israel that covers both Palis the Palestinian land and the Israeli land. If that was the case, and then people were divided by ethnicity, then that would be apartheid. Yeah. Funnily but enough, the only, the only apartheid I'm aware of is in the Palestinian territories where no Jews or Israelis are allowed to live. Exactly. 20%, 19 to 20% of Israelis are Arab Israelis. And many people forget that. Um, and 
on the far right, it's to do with these conspiracy theories about they blame Jews for um, the rise of communism because for some reason they go, oh, look, see, this person had some Jewish ancestry, uh, half Jewish ancestry. Look, they were all Jews. They did communism. Look, Jews bad. That's just child play. But what, what, what are you doing? Style is, you know, you've got the far right who think Jews are communists, the far left who think Jews are capitalists and Westerners. And then there are yes. Islamists. You have to, but so my question is, though, is there something that unites all of them? Is there something deep within each of their psyches where they're, you know, they're, they're directing their rage at Jews? Do you, think, do you think there's a common underlying theme? I think there may be. And I think that's to do with uh, the in-out kind of tribalistic mentality. And um, in terms of essentially envy, I think envy is covered with all three of those um the far right um hate seeing israel succeed um the far left hate seeing israel succeed and the islamists kind of the existence of israel is kind of like a slap in their face because literally israel is the most advanced um, country in the middle east that basically shows that look the, the the jews have outdone you um and that is kind of what's at the heart of it, I believe. There may be something else as well, but I'm not entirely sure. So, so I'm kind of cons considering some of these ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think you might be. I think you're onto something with that. I think that's right. Exactly what what, what you're uh, what you said. Um, so, so hell, you're you know you're clearly a, you're a moral hero. You're you're someone that's listened to your inner um, moral conscience the voice of morality i, I would consider it the voice the voice of god really and and you you can you heard the, you heard that voice and you listened to it you know i, I think about also um mossab uh, yusuf the, the the son of hamas uh, mm. uh who lives in uh, america the son of the hamas leader who um i think he's in america who um you know rejected uh hamas and mm. uh, even though he grew up in the heart of it and he shows and you show that you, you give hope to people, you give hope to the world because you show that just because you're so deeply entrenched in a certain ideology, you are able to, to move past it, to get out of this, uh, the hateful spiral. But the question is, and I think you're really a real authority on this, is what, what do we need to do? How can we turn that, this envy into uh, tolerance, perhaps even um, love, acceptance, pride in, in, in one another? Um, how can we deal with these deeply entrenched um, views? How can we help people to see the light and get out of their, you know, um, their hateful prism and ideology? Do you have any sort of, pra I know you're doing a lot of work to speak to people. What are some of your practical views? Honestly, it's, um, you did ask for practical views, but I do think actually at the crux of it, it's more philosophical in terms of the culture. Uh, the global culture we have uh, and the culture we have in the West and in the East, where basically there's kind of this moral decay of kind of almost like um, if it's like kind of if you're religious, then you believe in morals. And if you're non-religious, you're kind of almost like a nihilist, almost where you just say, oh, yeah, morals don't exist and we can do whatever we want. I think 
that's dangerous um thinking that way i think morals do exist um and i say that as someone who is secular um and morals exist that community matters that um it's not about just ourselves and the individual that not everyone should just jump to conclusions on everything because it's trending or because somehow uh, they think that they're so important that they understand a very complex and um, uh, like a very complicated uh, scenario. Um, I think people need to be to learn humility in the sense that they need to realize that there are many things that they don't know uh, and they should go out and try to seek to address that. So I think in terms of culture, because culture is so powerful that it can literally reverse your own biological programming. For instance, just to give kind of an example, um, if we look at monks or if we look at priests, celibate, right? That goes against kind of the biological programming of reproducing. But that's a cultural thing that has literally overridden our genes. If it's if culture is that powerful, I believe cultural change, very targeted cultural change, engineered very carefully, um, can affect very good results in the world. Um, and I think we should kind of see it in that way rather than kind of just kind of aimlessly kind of bumbling about. And this is where kind of I, I identify as a cultural Muslim and I very much um, look up to religious belief systems um, because I see that they actually do have a structure, that they actually have kind of a purpose, that they provide goals to, to, to achieve. And that's something that when it comes to secular individuals and kind of atheists and agnostics, agnostics such as myself, that we lack. And I think that, um, especially in the Western world, we kind of need to look back at religion and kind of go, okay, what can we learn? Yes. yes. Rather than arrogantly saying, yeah, let's just dismiss everything because it's all silly and oh, yeah. whatever, you believe in fairies or whatever they say. Um, personally, I think belief in God is reasonable. Um, uh, I'm more of an agnostic deist. Um, yeah. And so and, yeah. it's, it's interesting because in many ways, this is part of the purpose of JTV because, you know, we can't, we, the answer, especially with uh, radical Muslims to, to them cannot be your, you know, your uh, desire for religion and higher purpose. Oh, just stop it and become a secular Westerner. Mm. No, they're, they're, they're yearning for meaning, for something, a, a life that transcends just their own needs is absolutely legitimate. And as a Jew and a practicing Jew, it's something that is 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 not just legitimate, but it's they're, they're hearing also a, a, a deep voice within them that, that believes there is a sense. It's it's a really a compliment to the human being that we crave to live, lead a life that's more than just ourselves. So the problem is not the yearning, the problem is what kind of religion we have, what kind of God we believe in. Do exactly. we believe in a God of hate or do we believe in, in a God of exactly. a God of uh, love and of, of you know tolerance and, and all that? And so it's not 
it's not that we need to do away with religion. It's just that we need to re-understand the creator, re-understand God and, and, and all that. And that's what JCV's really been about, because I've recognized that in the Western world, secularism, I mean, look, you think secularism is the answer? Look at all these universities who are celebrating what Hamas did. There's, there, you know, there's a serious lack of wisdom and tolerance for barbarism in the secular Western world as well. So this really gets to the core of what JTV has always been about, which is about, you know, that, as you said, there's very much strong reason and good reason for, for connection with God and purpose. It is essential to the human psyche. And it's just about doing it the way the creator wants, not a, a perverted way of it. See, the thing is, everyone wants to, has this yearning to be subsumed by something greater than themselves. They want to identify with something. They want to be given a purpose in that identity. Um, and for instance, we, we, we had religion be pretty much before the Enlightenment in the West. And actually, many of the Enlightenment philosophers, you know, the, the famous quote, God is dead by Nietzsche, um, that actually isn't because people interpret that as saying him saying God is dead. Yay. No, that wasn't actually the, his point. He the full quote is God is dead and we have killed him. We have blood on our hands. Hmm. He was lamenting the destruction of religion because the, the Enlightenment philosophers were kind of going, okay, what's going to replace this? Right? So, see, I, I'm not a believer, but I see the utility in religion. It's clearly, it's existed for a reason. It came to be for a reason in multiple cultures, in pretty much every single culture. I think in every single culture, actually. There's a reason for it. Yeah. And, um, I think down at the core is kind of the idea that people believe that morals are just kind of mere opinions and that um, simply uh, moral realism rather than moral objectivism uh, isn't possible if you're if you're not religious. And I, I completely disagree with that view. Yeah, interesting, really interesting. I definitely think that the fact that we all do have this yearning for, for meaning and purpose, it points to the fact that there, that there, there is one. Um, my, my, that's my, my personal view. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned that point about, you know, God is dead. That was a, a phrase that I think was popularized also in the 1960s. I think Time magazine had a, had a big magazine cover that said, is God dead in the aftermath of, you know, the atrocities of, of the Second World War and, uh, and the Holocaust and, and other atrocities. And uh, it, I heard a rabbi speak recently about the fact that you know, there's always things and ideas that we can take from what we see in the world around us. And he said, on some level, emotionally, God himself, and he, you know, we both believe in God. This was expressing God's emotional state at that moment. He felt he was dead. The amount of, in this, emotionally, right, in the amount of uh, uh, evil that had been done, um, and now today as well, in, in his name, uh, is utterly, uh, utterly appalling. And, and it represents the worst of, of humanity. Um, but Sahel, you, you represent you really the see, best. Um, but my eyes are watering because I remembered a, a kind of a graffitied quote that was written in Auschwitz, which said, if God exists, 
he's going to have to seek forgiveness from me. And that, that, that actually made me cry the first time I read that. Um, yeah, that, that it's kind of metaphorically. The truth is it shows it's, it's the not, pain. It's, it's not, it's not metaphorical. And we, you know, Judaism does absolutely believe that God is emotional, sensitive, and cries. He cries when, when think about, you know, it's so odd that sometimes we have this sense of God as being a parent, a father in heaven. But then, but then he's totally emotionless. And when we suffer, well, he says, well, it's ultimately for your good. When a parent sees their child in pain, the parent is actually even in even more pain. So how much mm. more so is God a creator in pain when he sees his, his children in pain? You know, we, we say that um, that when the Egyptians were drowning in the sea, when the Jewish people left Egypt, uh, the, the creators, sorry, the, the angels uh, said, uh, wants to sing praise to God for, for the justice that occurred. And he said, you're, you're, you're uh, singing when my creatures are drowning. So these were people who had committed terrible acts against the Jewish people. So how much more so does God weep how much more so does God feel pain um, when, when you know, righteous people suffer, people who have done no wrong suffer? And so absolutely, it's, it's, there's a living, breathing relationship. And yes, there, there is definitely, God has questions to answer. He has questions to answer. Mm. And we, as believing Jews, believe he will answer them. But frankly, we're not really interested in the answer at this stage. We just want the suffering to end. And we know that it has to, whatever answer it is, it's going to have to be absolutely bloody awesome because the suffering has been absolutely bloody awesome and the pain throughout human history. Honestly, um, kind of when people, when I've seen during these protests, people say things like horrid things, like um, Hitler was right. You know, Hitler, the only thing he did wrong was he didn't kill more Jews. Even as an Islamist who was considering literal terrorism i never thought like that i never once thought a, a thought that horrid you probably also had a very difficult relationship with god right at an extremist because if you see, think of god as so as doing things that are so hateful and, and and cruel in his name what's your relationship with like with that god exactly it's not it's not entirely healthy is it um and i mean do you feel that this god has yeah, your back that, that, do you feel this god you see, can like trust how, how what kind of no, relationship you can have with a god kind like of, that uh, it's kind of like almost like now having come out of it and kind of seeing it from a third party perspective it's very much kind of the the extreme islam version of god is kind of malevolent and very frankly sadistic it's it's insane and um it's just if you if you look at some of the the, the scriptures it's just oh the the kufa die like this and they, they're going to be tortured this way and that way and they're so bad and it's something that never fit right with me if i'm being honest but i just always ignored that doubt i just kind of pushed it back and i just tried not to think about it Sohel, 
you really are you're a hero and you're an example and i really hope this you know this interview it's it's been one of the most remarkable interviews that we've done on jtv and i really hope that it's and i know it will have ripple effects on others and we have a significant muslim audience actually as well by the way so i'm sure parts of the muslim community will but will listen to this um two final questions on a personal note um what do you have a relationship with your family your parents still uh quite extreme is 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 there any relationship there they are very extreme and i know um from one of my siblings who reached out to me recently um but no with the with my parents and with the rest of my siblings i have no contact or communication um and honestly i think it's better that way because what they stand for is so vehemently against my ideals my ideals now that i just wouldn't be able to stand even being in their presence frankly um because what they believe is so abhorrent that I, I, I just can't, I just can't deal with it. Have um, you ever tried communicating with the them? I, I, once or twice, yes. Um, I mean, in terms of like how I view my old self, it's almost as though I'm looking at like an alien. It's, I know that person was me, but it's almost like there's a schism between the, the stream of consciousness of when I was younger versus me now. And it's like, it's like there's this rift where like, I just don't identify with my prior self. And it's really bizarre. Um, yeah. And I think on, on, on Islam generally, I do want to, to point out that actually for a year or two, I was a very progressive Muslim. And um, that's the reason why I still consider myself to be a cultural Muslim, because I saw firsthand that Islam can be a beautiful religion that's open, that's uh, that can coexist. Um, it doesn't have to be the version of Islam that I was raised with. Um, yeah. And so also one last question. I saw that you were at one point involved with the Labour Party here in the UK. Are you still uh, active there? And what's been your relationship with that? Whilst I'm not an, still an active activist in the Labour Party, I, I am still a fully signed up and paid up member. Um, as for kind of Labour, I have very mixed feelings. I am pretty much kind of minus a few kind of policy decisions uh, I am pretty much a kind of like center-left Blairite tradition type uh, person. Um, Blair kind of famously being very, very much a friend of Israel. Um, that's one thing that I very much liked about him. And um, it's just momentum and the anti-Semitism and this whole toxic far and I'll, I, I'll refer to them as far left because that's what they are this far left idea that somehow we should hate our own countries hate the west because it's self like in some self-flagellating manner we're essentially saying oh we were guilty of imperialism in the past therefore we are evil and we should suffer um, and we should support the enemies of the of the West because they're fighting against US imperialism, whatever that means. Um, 
that's just highly toxic, highly, highly toxic and incredibly dangerous. And I'm seeing that across universities, uh, especially in the young population, there's an issue. I, I don't know how we're going to address this, but people are very much politically illiterate, I think, and people are come to very strong positions without much evidence kind of supporting their view. And yeah, I think that we essentially kind of need a philosophical revival in, in the West, um, where basically we need to rethink some of our political philosophies, even the way we conceive of liberalism, because currently we have a loophole, which is that we should be so tolerant and open so as to allow for ideologies that are hostile to ours to fester, grow, and eventually replace liberalism. Yeah. That's self-defeating. And yeah. any ideology that is self-defeating doesn't deserve to exist. Yeah, of course. Now, I am a liberal, a classical type of liberal. Um, I just believe in a very different type of liberalism. <laughs> and that's yeah. why I believe that our kind Muscular of philosophical liberalism. thinking from, yeah, exactly it's it's kind of outdated we kind of had this utopian view of the world and we planned for that and we thought oh you know with multiculturalism integration will be fine you know they will see the superiority of our ways and they will they will integrate uh, and assimilate um it's it's not come to pass the way we thought it would and i think our philosophical thinking and our political thinking needs to be updated and for that to happen we need a revival uh, a political and philosophical revival in the um, west what do you what do you make of Keir Starmer um because you know on the one hand um he's the labor leader for those who aren't familiar or they're watching this outside of britain um on the one hand he's done some moves to try to deal with the anti-semitism at, at, at in the labor party and some people have been impressed by that on the other hand he was trying to get jeremy corbyn friend of hamas jeremy corbyn into power just a few years ago not when he was some kind of student activist uh you know and i understand sometimes you have to do things for political opportunism you know you know there's going to be a time when jeremy corbyn is no longer there but for me there's certain red lines you have to have in life and trying to yes. get a man like that into power he was such a senior member of his cabinet. I just find that to be unacceptable. And, and even now, when he was asked by Sky News just a few weeks ago, does he regret that? He wouldn't bring himself to say he regretted it. He said, I, no, I, he said, I always want a Labour government. And that is deeply, deeply disturbing to me that this man could become prime minister. He said that. I he entirely did. believe he did say that. I believe he did. that. Because he, that did. Sounds he was like asked him. by Beth Rigby on Sky hilarious. News just a few weeks ago, after the October 7th massacre, by the way. And he was asked, she said, Jewish people, and by the way, I think she's somewhat um, in favor of Starmer, and she was being, t I was quite impressed by her line of questioning. She said to him, um, you know, Jewish people are concerned you tried to get Corbyn into power. Were you doing that? Were you saying you supported him because you really believed it or because you had to? And he said, well, I always want a Labour government, but we lost our way. She said, that wasn't my question. Do you regret it? And he said the same answer. I always want a Labour government, but we lost our way. I don't know why he can't just say I regret it. And I have, I'm forced to conclude it's because he doesn't think it was that terrible. Honestly, it's, 
there's a reason why I wouldn't make a good politician because <laughs> I'm too honest. Um, and I, I probably would have been kicked out of the party if I were a Labour MP, even a Labour member probably would have been kicked out uh, for being so anti-Corbyn. Um, and um, it's problematic. He's got kind of people around him. Don't get me wrong. I am impressed by Keir Starmer in the sense that he hasn't capitulated to the insane pressure that's been put on him to reverse his position on not supporting a ceasefire in Israel, right? So he's he's supported the government position. That I admire, but he's, got, he's surrounded by people who are Corbynites uh, of the previous kind of momentum type. For instance, David Lammy is the shadow foreign secretary. He said some pretty horrendous things in the past, I think, racist things about white people and very regressive kind of far left things. Um, And I'm just really worried. And honestly, I don't even know if I'll vote and I'm not even sure if I'll remain a Labour Party member um, unless I see a drastic change with like a lurch more to the centre, i.e. to the right. yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, the thing about Starmer and you know not calling for a ceasefire. On the one hand, you know, I'm sure he's got a lot of pressure, but uh, on the other hand, my sense is that a lot of the moves he's making is just he's playing the the Tony Blair playbook, right? In order to do what's right, not because he genuinely believes it, because one second he's a senior member of Corbyn's cabinet, and now he's suddenly, you know, and I think he used to be on speak on panels that were calling for the boycott of Israel and all the rest of it. So I find it very hard to be convinced that the positions he's taking are out of political conviction and not just out of political expediency. And therefore, if this is all just political expediency in order to win an election, how can uh, I or anyone feel confident that we know where he'll stand on all kinds of issues once he is prime minister? That he'll carry through, yes. Um, I wasn't aware that he used to kind of uh, appear on kind of panels saying boycott Israel. That's, well, there's a that's there's pretty, a picture there's a, there's telling. a picture of him. Um, I think the Daily Mail reported it, and a picture of him standing behind uh, um, some super anti-Israel posters that were anti, hot, very hostile to Israel, uh, speaking on that kind of panel. Um, so I don't know whether he explicitly called for for boycott, but um, I'm not in saying the, that. In the United, yeah, in the United Kingdom, circles. yeah, in the in the UK. I've found that we are increasingly seeing a dearth of politicians and leaders who actually have convictions, who actually believe in what they say, who actually are kind of, because they believe what they say, are actually charismatic and actually don't just follow the public opinion, but shape the public opinion, guide the British public, because a leader is supposed to lead, not simply follow. And a leader who cannot lead is impotent, essentially. It's, it's, there's no real power there and you can't function properly. You can't run a country. And I'm deeply concerned about the kind of, the, the, the kind of this stasis that we're kind of in. And I'm kind of seeing this kind of, this across the West where we're kind of, um, we're almost like kind of Icarus with the, 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 the wings burnt and we're kind of like just going, 
yeah, we 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 used to believe in things, but meh. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's a, it's it's an dangerous. absolute crisis. It's a crisis yeah. across the West. A hundred percent, completely agree with you. Um, and and in some ways, this is what 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 uh, fuels Islamic extremism because there's no yes. soul. There's no soul. There's no meaning and higher purpose and calling for you know um, deeper values in the Western traditions, um, at least they're not anymore. Um, and so that's what's, uh, you're 100% right to, to pinpoint those things. Originally, I used to be feel very strongly a part of the Ummah, and that used to give me purpose and meaning. And when I kind of became de-radicalized, even whilst I was still a believing Muslim, um, I began to increasingly identify with the British identity so I was quite patriotic, not in the kind of crazy right wing kind of way, but um, in a way that's kind of like, yeah, I'm proud of my country. I identify with my country. I'm from a former um, uh, 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 country that was colonized by Britain. And now I'm kind of like, a you know, children of the empire type of thing. And um, so I kind of became proud of my British identity. And I realized very quickly that the reason why Islamist extremism can have so much sway is because young British Muslims, because even the, the, the native white population doesn't feel able to identify with British, with Britain, because it's kind of, you know, it's got the, the kind of connotation of the far right or something. Um, it's it's created this situation where there's no identity on the secular side, on the, the side of Britain, and there's everything on the Islamist side. Obviously, they're going to go to the, towards Islamism yeah. because that's providing them their needs. Yeah. Yeah, patriotism is, patriotism is frowned upon. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a disaster. Mm. Um, and I think, yeah, that's what you're offering as a solution is absolutely, it's essential. It's critical to, for, for the survival of the West. And so how, what, lastly, what are you sort of, what's your plan for the future? What are you focused on? What happens moving forward? So um, I've got a number of plans, um, some of which are kind of evolving at the moment. Um, I've got to complete my immunology degree at Cambridge and then my maths and physics degree at the Open University because I'm doing two part-time degrees. Um, I've got to finish those and then I think I will be setting up an organization uh, hopefully at some point um, kind of focused on kind of cultural and philosophical revival almost and kind of progressive Islam and kind of a revival there too. Um, and I think I also kind of want to work in kind of applying mathematics and AI to both science and also to counterterrorism. So um, that's that's kind of my life goal or trajectory, so to speak. Amazing, amazing. So Hel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being so open with us about uh, your journey. You are inspiring. You give us hope uh, that, you know, I, we just re released a video on JTV that Jewish people, we do believe ultimately that humanity will choose good in the end. We do believe in the goodness of humanity. And you are an example. You're an example of that. Um, and so um, thank you. Thank you for making the time to be here. And thank you for having courage, really. I think that's the main theme, the main takeaway here. Um, good luck with the next steps. And 
it, there may be future times where we'd wish where we might want to speak with you again if you'd be open to that that would be wonderful absolutely no thank you the honor is mine thank you